Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about pre- and postpartum depression and pregnancy. And it's taken us a long time on the podcast to get around to this topic, even though it's certainly come up in other conversations that we've had around women's mental health and motherhood. Um, but I am glad that we're talking about it right now when this podcast is coming out during the holidays, because as with any type of mental health challenge, the holidays tend to compound feelings of isolation and loneliness. Well, sure. And I mean, the holidays are a huge time when you're already facing social stigma or feel that you might face social stigma if you're not reveling in the joy and the lights and the presence and the time with people. Um, and the same kind of goes for the conversation around postpartum depression uh, that women feel a lot of stigma if they do experience anything other than sheer joy throughout their pregnancy and after. And it can be very isolating. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this speaks to the construct of motherhood that we have established that says women um are allowed to express really nothing other than pure joy. Right. Um, that it's unacceptable and uncomfortable for a new mom to say that she is not instantly in love with her baby and that she doesn't want to spend every waking moment with it. Um, but that is a reality for a lot of women. Um, and it's only been in the past 20 years that postpartum depression has really started coming out of the shadows and there being a, a growing movement to destigmatize it. But really, it's only been in the last couple of years that we are starting to learn and talk more about issues of prenatal depression mm -hmm. and uh, also things uh, distinct from postpartum depression like postpartum anxiety. Right. Yeah. Maternal mental health, for some reason, for well, for several reasons, is really not well understood. And that's kind of shocking. But one aspect that goes into that that contributes to our poor understanding of both prenatal and postpartum depression and anxiety is the fact that it is unethical to do any sort of testing or experimentation on pregnant women and their fetus. Now, you can have studies like uh, vol voluntary studies where uh, pregnant women, uh, maybe some of them are on antidepressants or have been and some who are not will will join a study and describe their experiences. But you don't have a whole lot of studies out there um, because of this whole ethical issue. And so I think that not only the question of ethical studies, but also what we were just talking about, about this stigma against women admitting to feeling less than stellar about their pregnancy or their baby really contributes to sort of a lack of information. Yeah, I mean, there there's no way that you could set up a controlled, randomized study, which is more of the gold standard of research, where you bring in, say, 50 pregnant women and you give 25 of them this uh, antidepressant or SSRI of some sort that might help and then give the rest a placebo and hope that both groups 
groups and both groups' babies fare okay. I mean, you just quickly get into really dicey territory there. So this is a challenge not only for us as a society and how we look at women and how we um treat mothers mm-hmm. and also what we how we allow mothers to feel maybe more more than one emotion which is joy um and also on the flip side of that there's this medical community that's grappling with the realities of all of these constraints but also these very real needs because what we've known for a long time is that yes giving birth often affects our mental health, whether it is temporarily or for a longer period of time. Yeah. And I would like to offer a bit of a disclaimer right up front um, that a lot of the postpartum depression research that is out there is very Western centric. Um, and the way that we are going to be talking about uh, mental health is very Western centric because you have to keep in mind that things like depression, mental health, Childbirth and issues of family support in general really aren't necessarily treated or viewed the same in all cultures across the world. So we can't always even ask the same study questions the same way to women who are in diametrically opposite or very, very different cultures. And so for today's episode, we will definitely be focusing more on that Western based research. Yeah. With, with the, the caveat in mind that uh, cultures of uh, childbirth and motherhood um, are very different depending on where you are. Uh, but if we look more at just the basic science of Postpartum affective disorders, the three main types that have been highlighted start with baby blues, which talk about a real marginalizing term. <laughs> uh, th- that was even the name of a comic strip. Really? That I used to read in the su- Sunday funnies. Oh, I could see baby Kristen sitting there with the newspaper on her lap with her glasses. I've got my little half spectacles thinking, hmm, that's an awfully marginalizing uh, <laughs> term for a name for a comic. Well, uh, well, baby blues, I mean, that that tends to be the thing that new moms are warned about more often. Like, uh, you might feel a little weird the first couple days, but shake it off. You'll feel fine. And I mean, for the most part, the women who do experience the so-called baby blues, that is true. I mean, it's it's this feeling that usually begins in the first couple days after birth and can last up to two weeks. And you might feel mood swings or crying spells and anxiety. You might have difficulty sleeping. But It does tend to go away with a good support system, reassurance, help from a partner or the rest of your family. But about 20 percent of women, new moms who experience these so-called baby blues, which I'm like, seriously, do we not have a different name for this? um, will see it turn into postpartum depression and (laughs) remaining briefly on baby blues. All of those symptoms that you just cited are so much more also than feeling weird because even if our brains in the delivery room or wherever you delivered were... (laughs) uh, The back of a pickup truck. Even if our brains were in beyond tip-top shape, a la Bradley Cooper in the film Limitless, which if you haven't seen it, I don't recommend it. Just save your save your time. He he like takes a pill and it makes him super smart. It's like Adderall (laughs) times a billion. Anyway, so even if we had Bradley Cooper's (laughs) brain, (laughs) uh, hashtag jelly, um, 
even that aside, like just having a new baby, oh, sure. all of a sudden being a mother, like whatever trauma your body has gone through, toss on that mood swings, crying spells. If I just randomly have crying spells, I don't feel just weird. I feel like something is completely off in my life. So, I mean, just again, I'm, I'm astonished that this term, um, exists because it's so obviously misleading and well, it's also kind of patronizing exactly yeah if a woman is complaining of not feeling well uh, as has happened to women in my life the first thing that they're told is that it'll go away it's nothing it's just baby blues well for 20 percent or more it won't and when it doesn't you can develop postpartum depression and and you know we are kind of zeroing in on postpartum depression, but in saying that we're zeroing in on postpartum depression today, it's a little bit misleading because one thing that's really not often talked about is this thing that we know as postpartum depression, uh, where those symptoms are so much more intense, can last so much longer, can really interfere with your ability to care for your baby and handle those daily tasks. A lot of times those issues develop either before pregnancy, so they're pre-existing depression or anxiety, or they can be this thing called prenatal depression. And so this is a thing that I didn't actually know much about. Now, granted, I've never been pregnant, but you hear about postpartum depression. You don't really hear about prenatal depression or anxiety, things that develop while you are pregnant and then affect you after. Which... As I was reading up on this, and this is a, a lot of the info that we're now getting um, about prenatal depression um, and even pre-existing depression leading up to pregnancy, uh, it blows my mind that this is such new information and new conversations that we're having. Because how long have we known that women get depressed and anxious at rates higher than men? Like, I've never been pregnant, but I've been depressed I've, I have clinical anxiety. Right. Like, why, why is this suddenly like, oh my God. Well, and the age at which a lot of women start experiencing clinical depression or clinical anxiety is childbirth age, typical childbirth age. Well, even think about before that, when you start to see the gender gap in mental health start to widen, it's when we get our first periods. Right. So you would think that from the get go, Medicine would be paying closer attention to the interaction of our mental health and our reproductive health. Well, and this is why it's so important that we're talking about this stuff today and highlighting the fact that more women are talking about this. Um, we read a column, Kristen, I believe you sent it to me from Cosmo, where a woman who had experienced... Um, both prenatal and postpartum depression. This woman named Jane Marie wrote an essay in Cosmo about how she had been managing depression and anxiety since she was very young when she experienced a traumatic brain injury. And because of that, had um, been on antidepressants for years. But as soon as she... Um, got engaged and knew that she was getting married, knew she wanted to have a baby as soon as possible because she was 34 and um, just wanted to do it before, you know, before the old cobwebs start moving into <laughs> our uteruses. Um, this hormonal cobwebs. And it was such an eye opener for me, not necessarily because I have baby fever at the moment, but because I am someone who does take daily medication that has 
totally changed my life for the better to manage uh, my clinical anxiety. And the thought as I'm reading this of having to go off of that and then having to go through the experience of both pregnancy and childbirth without it uh, terrifies me, completely terrifies me. Um, and I even posted it at the time on the Stuff Mom Never Told You Facebook page, and it sparked a really massive conversation of a lot of women saying, oh, thank God, like this is something that I'm scared about too, uh, for people who hadn't been pregnant before and women who had been through it and had to deal with all of this stuff but in the shadows because it's taboo to talk about, oh, you, you, you're depressed and you're pregnant and we might have some medication mixed in there. Like, because as we've talked about on the podcast before, once you are pregnant, everybody has an opinion about you, your body, your baby, decisions you make. It's like the floodgates open up into every nosy person in the world. Well, and that's a great point that Andrew Solomon raised over at the New York Times um, magazine in a in-depth piece that he did looking more at prenatal depression um, that develops during pregnancy, whether you had existing pre-existing depression or not. And he pointed out how often we strive in our culture to make our mental health and particularly depression and anxiety a private emotion. But once you're pregnant, it becomes so public. Right. Not only because people going to have opinions on all sides, but also you have to be forthright about it. You know, you need a team of caregivers from uh, your OBGYN, but also to uh, a therapist. And even um, maternal psychiatry is a developing field now. Yeah. And I mean, thank God it is. And I thought that Andrew Solomon put it really well in describing these issues of postpartum depression and prenatal depression. Uh, he says that for some expectant mothers and new parents, love seems to be automatic. It wafts them instantly up to a new level of consciousness. Others have to climb a very steep staircase to reach the same heights. The fact that the exercise can be agonizing and that some women cannot quite make it does not dull the intent behind it. And so for a look at what some of these women are experiencing who experience prenatal and postpartum depression... You're, of course, going to experience things like depressed or severe mood swings, again, excessive crying, feelings of worthlessness, shame, guilt or inadequacy. A lot of what we read from women's first person accounts of dealing with this were issues of like suddenly they'd wake up at 2 a.m. thinking I'm going to be a terrible mother. I'm going to end up hurting my baby or or I'm I'm not going to be worthy of raising this child. Um you know, you might also experience insomnia, sleeping too much, overwhelming fatigue, uh, diminished ability to think clearly or concentrate. Um, and once the baby is here, uh, moms might experience difficulty bonding with the baby, thoughts of harming themselves or the baby. But it is worth noting that those intrusive thoughts are very common. And so it's important to normalize this topic and these health issues, because, again, it is so isolating. If you're sitting there thinking that you might harm yourself or your child, 
or that you're going to be a terrible mother, it's okay to talk to someone. It's okay to ask for help. And if you are one of those women who experiences prenatal depression, uh, for about 50% of those women, it does turn into postpartum depression. And you might experience actually more intense feelings of sadness and paranoia. So tracking and talking about your mental health and those feelings and those emotions throughout and after your pregnancy is so important. And if we move uh, farther along on the spectrum uh, of postpartum mood disorders, you have postpartum psychosis, which is a rare condition that typically develops within the first week after delivery. And essentially, you take all of the hallmarks of postpartum depression and amplify them. So you may experience things like disorientation, uh, hallucinations, delusions, sleep disturbances, and paranoia and and potentially attempts to harm yourself or your baby. But something that's far more common, sort of back on the spectrum a little bit, than postpartum psychosis is postpartum anxiety. And this is another one of those uh, affective mood disorders that we are only recently learning about and only recently um, seeing more clinical investigation. And this is extremely important because, y'all, we hear all the time about postpartum depression, and in fact, not enough. Um, so I'm in no way being dismissive of of that. But we need to talk about postpartum anxiety because it is distinct from PPD. And this emerging research is suggesting that it's even more common than postpartum depression. Uh, but because it's not postpartum depression, it's often written off as, oh, these are just the baby blues. Oh, you know, just or relax. you're just worried about being a good mom. Right, or- right. And um, there was a study from 2013 in pediatrics which found that out of its sample population of a 1,000 new moms, 9% experienced postpartum depression and 17% experienced postpartum anxiety. And they experienced PPA longer term than PPD. Uh, and I have a hunch that at least part of that longer term effect is our lack of knowledge and understanding around it, even terminology around it. Um, so something that in, in very basic terms, uh, distinguishes postpartum anxiety from depression is sort of the level of energy. Mm-hmm. So you might see a lot of overlapping symptoms like a loss of appetite and, uh, concern over your baby. But whereas depressive symptoms sap your energy, you don't want to get out of bed, you're low, low, low. Anxiety is all a jumble of energy that you don't know what to do with. It's often linked to OCD type habits, um, really intrusive thoughts, uh, which may possibly involve um, harming yourself or your child. So um, it's it's definitely a, a distinct thing that I really hope I really hope is helpful for people listening um, because I only recently learned about it because a good friend of mine went through it. She went through a postpartum anxiety. Yes. Yes. And it took her so long. Even her gynecologist didn't get it right. It really took her getting involved with organizations like Postpartum International um, who connected with other mothers who were going through this, um, but also you know, are, are helping to champion, you know, this all of this spectrum of maternal mental health that we're just 
not paying close enough attention to. And I mean, it is crazy that we are not talking more about it because non-psychotic postpartum issues, depression and anxiety, are the most common complication of childbearing. And studies have shown that a woman has a greatly increased risk of being admitted to a psychiatric hospital within the first month after giving birth than at any other time in her life. Um, up to 15% of women experience that antenatal depression that we talked about, that depression that manifests during pregnancy before childbirth. Uh, and between 12 and 20% of women will develop symptoms of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, OCD, or a combination of these things during or after pregnancy. Um, and 10 to 15% of women might experience a major depressive episode within three months after giving birth. But the thing is, if you have it during one pregnancy, you might not have it during the next. Or if you don't in your first, then you might develop it in the next one. It's there, there are no constants. There are no guarantees. Well, one thing though that could absolutely distinguish your mental health experience with your first pregnancy that results in traumatizing, uh, PPA or PPD, whatever, whatever it might be. One thing that could um, alleviate a lot of that for a second pregnancy is actually going into pregnancy, understanding more about how our bodies and brains and, and brains hormones respond to pregnancy. I mean, right. that and that's and that's what you hear from a lot of women who go through this, particularly the uh, prenatal depression, where it just feels like it's out of nowhere. No one ever told them this was a possibility. Like this is also an issue of total failing when it comes to educating women about our body basics, but also about the range of scenarios that happen with pregnancy and childbirth. And I mean, it's not for a lack of trying on a lot of male doctors' parts in the history of medicine. Oh, yeah. Guys have had a lot of... (laughs) A lot of ideas. I mean, they've all, all ye oldy dude, dude doctors have known that women get cranky. You know, she's got a case of the baby blues for centuries. Um, but they basically just thought it was our like what uterus fluid getting into our heads. Yeah. So if you go back to Hippocrates, this is the same guy that thought that women had such gorgeous, lustrous hair because it was just filled with semen. Um, he just figured in back in the fifth century BCE that fluid from the uterus could flow to the head after childbirth and cause you to be delirious. And uh, one of his contemporaries said, ah, yes, terrific idea. Let me jump on that and say, you know why they cry so much? Because that fluid covers their eyes and runs out like tears. Yeah, I actually had to pause when I read that and was like, I'm not a doctor, but I feel like that's not the first thing I would go for, idea-wise. My uterine or cervical or any sort of inner fluid just leaking out over my brain and through my eye holes. Well, I'm I'm glad that you would be such an advanced ancient uh, physician, Caroline. Yeah, they probably murder me as a witch. That's true. Which honestly leads us to our next thing that does not cause postpartum depression, which is witchcraft. Uh, of course, people in the Middle Ages viewed postpartum symptoms as a sign that you were a witch. 
So there was just really no winning, honestly. And um, it's also not caused by milk suppression. Uh, a 19th century French psychiatrist said insanity manifests itself most frequently among women who do not nurse, which is funny because just a few decades later, uh, a British physician said that it was insanity of lactation that caused that was caused by anemia brought about by prolonged suckling or by the mother making undue efforts to nurse and so overtaxing her strength. So just within a couple of decades in the 19th century, you had people who were like, oh, my God, she's not nursing enough. And other people being like, oh, my God, she's over nursing and making herself crazy. And isn't it such a relief that there's like no pressure on women anymore about whether <laughs> breast is best? You Thank know? God we've because, moved on from all of those cause arguments. Because that, that doesn't compound any any negative feelings and insecurities oh, certainly and not. depression that you might be having. I'm being sarcastic, folks. But who was not being sarcastic <laughs> <laughs> was uh Freud yeah. What's Freud? I mean, actually, hang on. Time out here. Zach Morris, time out. <laughs> what if Freud had been sarcastic the whole time? You know, he was like, oh, yeah, it's an Oedipus complex. And we just didn't pick it up. We thought it was a quote when really he was putting sarcastic quotes around things. Yeah. And so we've we've built things so, about pipes and tunnels. So many psychoanalytical uh, fundamentals that really Freud just meant as a flick off <laughs> to to our poor intellect. Well, yeah. And I mean, postpartum depression certainly was not left out of Freudian theories. Uh, there were some Freudian inspired theories in the 1920s suggesting that postpartum symptoms were a result of things like frigidity because, you know, women suppressed homosexuality or good old incestuous urges. But see, again, what if he were being sarcastic? Like, oh, yeah, it's definitely frigidity. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, guys. Right. I think think I'd like him more, but would probably grow tired of him faster if that were the case. Yeah, yeah. Like that old Freud. And then like 10 minutes into your first drink at the bar, you're like, all right, someone get this guy out of here. Can you just be can you just say it with a straight face, Freud? Yeah, I'm very confused, as are decades and decades of other people. Um, and after a quick break, we are going to tell you some of the things that actually contribute to postpartum symptoms. Well, actually, <laughs> I'm still Freud at the bar. Sorry. <laughs> He'll go now. So it's no news that our hormones spike quite a bit uh, during pregnancy and especially during childbirth. Um, depending on the hormones we're talking about, levels might escalate more than a hundredfold, especially with things like estrogen, progesterone, and prolactin, um, all of which are intended to help your body get a baby out of it. Also helps said body bond to this thing that's just put you through a lot of physical pain, um, which is good. That's smart evolution. Good job. But uh, for every action, there is a reaction. Uh, there's like a Newtonian uh, <laughs> post-maternal law here right? Um, where when those hormones go up, they eventually 
Go back down. Hormone gravity. Yes. Makes total sense. Your hormones are shaped like apples. That's that's a lie. Please don't write that down. It's, that's um, your ovaries. That's, <laughs> tiny little app. Mine are Fiji. Um, after birth, estrogen and progesterone a plummet after having spiked really hard during pregnancy. And not so surprisingly, this can sort of disrupt your brain chemistry a little bit. Uh, other hormones produced by your thyroid also may drop sharply. And that can leave you feeling super tired, sluggish, and depressed, not to mention testing positive for thyroid antibodies during pregnancy does put you at an elevated risk of postpartum depression. And I have a thyroid condition, and every time I go see any doctor, because I just turned 33, they're all like, so what are your baby plans? Do you have any baby plans? Because, you know, your thyroid, you uh, you really need to be on levothyroxine if you are going to get pregnant. And testing positive for those thyroid antibodies would potentially be linked to postpartum depression down the road because of the critical role that our thyroid plays in hormone production. Yeah, I mean, there's there's your your thyroid is obviously a critical part of your endocrine system. And there's all sorts of things, whether you were pregnant or not, that it can affect. But uh, studies have shown that, for instance, if you have poorly controlled hyperthyroidism during pregnancy, you might have an increased risk of things like miscarriage and stillbirth, um, preterm birth, maternal heart failure. I mean, the connection with postpartum depression is just one factor of so many things that potentially could go wrong if you have uncontrolled thyroid issues when you are pregnant. And so my when I went to a terrible endocrinologist who like did all sorts of shamey behaviors, one of the things that she did tell me was that if I if I were to get pregnant, I would need to go back on thyroid medication to counteract any of those potential negative effects that my hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's disease could lead to. Gotcha. Um, there's also a potential genetic component. No surprise. Uh, some women are just genetically predisposed to being more sensitive to hormone changes, whether it's happening during puberty, menopause, menstruation. Uh, if you are on treatments with fertility drugs, some of our brains are just a, a little more like, oh, whoa, hey, <laughs> Hey there. Hey there, progesterone. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Is the progesterone tickling the brain? I, I just make it a little nervous. Just just goosing it a yeah, little bit? Yeah. Um Because you don't really know what it's going to do. It's got those big Mickey Mouse hands. Who knows? Um And yeah, there, there have been a, a couple of different studies looking into specifically genetic links between um, our hormones and postpartum and... Uh, researchers are hoping that through this research, within the next uh, 20 years, we might have a genetic test for PPD. Even though we've realized that this is some kind of issue since Hippocrates' day? This is, indeed. That's, is. that's, uh, listeners, am I alone in being dumbfounded by that? I don't, I don't think so at all. But Kristen, it doesn't stop there. There is more ho- hormone fun. Uh, in two separate studies, uh, levels of placental corticotropin-releasing hormone, which is a peptide hormone and neurotransmitter involved in your stress re- response, stress response, and the hormone beta-endorphin, which dulls pain after a traumatic event and which causes that runner's high thing. Experiencing those during pregnancy may predict whether women develop PPD. But again, that's two studies. 
you know, and I'm sure there are more studies prodding and poking at these ideas, but I included that not because I'm so sure of what this means, but to illustrate like, yes, there are possible links. We just don't know for sure yet. Um, and so researchers are now looking into how stress during pregnancy affects these hormones that will then affect like a domino effect, uh, postpartum anxiety and depression and how something like even yoga practice might protect against some of these hormonal imbalances. And we also need to mention how hormonal issues are extremely pertinent for transgender men who get pregnant because a lot of the time they will have to stop hormone therapy during pregnancy, which can potentially lead to gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Um, and since trans people on the whole have a higher rate of depression and suicidality. Um, OBGYNs and researchers who are starting to really look into the kind of tailored care specifically for um, trans pre and postnatal patients um, are focusing on uh, the right way to sort of manage these hormonal transitions for them, both, you know, during pregnancy and then after, like how once you segue back on to um, hormonal treatments, um, while also, you know, bonding initially with the infant. Yeah. And I mean, there's also so many obvious emotional issues going on, too, that can contribute to feelings of anxiety and depression during and after birth. I mean, you're already sleep deprived and overwhelmed. Uh, you're already potentially having trouble handling even minor problems that arise. You're probably going to feel anxious about that ability to care for a newborn. Uh, but also, you know, y- you've just had a major life shift, right? You've had a baby. Um, eh, eh, eh. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, like that throws your identity, not into crisis, but definitely into like, Complete reevaluation. Uh, projecting here, it would throw my identity <laughs> majorly into crisis. <laughs> Completely. Like you yeah. go, especially if you have, you know, a sexual partner who's like there with you, like sexual for life partner who's there with you, um, becoming a mother and just the physical trauma that can happen, uh, and all of the difficulties sometimes with babies uh, latching on or not latching and the pain that can come along with breastfeeding and just that entire shift of transitioning into becoming a mother again, like <laughs> uh, it, this episode honestly has made me realize a lot of uh, uh, childbirth fears I didn't realize that I had because I just I, I can't imagine like even just that conceptualizing that identity shift. Yeah. And I mean, again, that goes back to so many discussions, even like celebrity interviews and magazines. You know, you it's so common to read these quotes about like, oh, I've never loved like this before. You know, my life has new meaning, blah, blah, blah. So you can imagine it's that much harder for a person who doesn't feel that to feel that they can come forward. And talk about it because they, I'm sure that feelings of shame will come along with that. Feelings of not being normal, of, of feeling something that might be taboo or just not talked about. Because everyone around you is waiting for your joy. Yeah. You know, I mean, there is, there is a script essentially that (laughs) we could print out and hand to you for what, for the way that we expect 
new mothers and new parents to be reacting. And it's very it's a very limited role. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, I mean, postpartum depression and anxiety can just like a depression and anxiety can really strike any woman of any age, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, education, whatever. It doesn't discriminate. But there are some things that put you at higher risk. Um, if you have a personal or family history of depression or bipolar disorder, um, if you've experienced stressful events in the past year, maybe you've had pregnancy complications, illness, financial problems. Um, if you're having problems with your significant other or have a weak support system or if you've had difficulty breastfeeding, um, there's also a lot of links between uh, an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy and postpartum depression uh, or if your baby is experiencing health problems or other special needs. Or if your doctor made you go off all of your uh, antidepressants and mood stabilizers. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So the the good news in this is that screening is starting to be a more common and even required practice. But when we talk about screening, we're only talking about postpartum depression. There still is not enough screening, um, if at all, for postpartum anxiety. And I mean, you've got to keep in mind that screening can be difficult because a lot of the symptoms that we've talked about also overlap with just having a baby. You're tired. You're anxious. I mean, your whole life has just changed. Your identity has shifted. Um, and also, it's worth noting that screening tools in general poorly represent the diverse cultures that exist in America alone. Uh, and studies have traditionally been on white women. So, again, yeah, childbirth, motherhood, mental health, they all are thought about and talked about differently around the world. But even here in America, these issues are thought of and talked about differently. You know, we read some pieces uh, from women of color who had experienced either postpartum depression or anxiety and their friends told them that's a white woman's disease. Like, get over it. You need to be a strong mother. Um, and so screening for postpartum depression specifically is mandatory in just one state in the United States. That's New Jersey. But research on this mandatory screening that was following low income women shows that it didn't really contribute to higher rates of treatment, which you would think would be the goal of like, okay, we're screening you. You have some risk factors. Let's get you monitored and treated. But all of this feels like too little, too late. Um, not, not to discount the importance of screening, but I'm just saying there is more screen that we should be doing before the baby even comes out. Uh, so the New York Times reported in January 2016 that a federal panel recommended that all pregnant women and new moms or dads uh, should be screened for depression. Um, But here's the thing that a piece in the Washington Post noted is that the postpartum depression screening is usually conducted with something called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, which is a 10-item questionnaire that only assesses symptoms for the past seven days. uh, So that doesn't take into account uh, the length of your uh, mental anguish you might have been going through, discomfort, nor does it account for symptom severity. So even even with this screening, there could be a lot, a lot of people who are being missed. 
Yeah. And then, of course, you have issues of insurance and coverage and support, especially that are arising now with the changing administration and calls to dismantle Obamacare. I mean, Obamacare has called for more funds for postpartum depression research, education and support services, but Congress didn't appropriate them. And frankly, if I get a little editorially, uh, I doubt that they will appropriate them now. But one of the consequences of being screened for postpartum depression is that uh, life and disability insurance providers have sometimes penalized women with these mental illnesses by charging them more money. Uh, they might exclude mental illness from coverage or decline to cover them at all. And so basically life insurance companies are like, are you going to kill yourself? And disability insurers are trying to guess your likelihood of being unable to work because of mental illness. And like another layer of terrible in all of this is because pregnant women who are experiencing symptoms of depression or anxiety tend to get lumped in with the larger pool of people in general diagnosed with these issues, which means that people with mild or moderate cases or cases that have already cleared up might be facing higher rates. And what is contributing to all this is really part of why we're talking about it today. It's the underdiagnosis and really under discussion of postpartum depression that means that insurance companies simply do not have a ton of long-term data to base their rates on. They're basing their rates on all of the other people in their networks that are depressed or anxious and have to go on medicine or seek therapy or, or whatever. Um, and so these companies are just not really sure what has happened, what has gone on to happen with pregnancy-related mental health issues down the road. And if there are any listeners with expertise on this who could fill us in on, on why this could or could not be, a question that I have is why more innovative, say, insurance companies aren't looking into treating this more as preventative care, both for the person giving birth and also for the baby that was just birthed. And you have to wonder <laughs> if it's not linked, though, that particular issue. And again, I would love to hear from listeners, too. But you have to wonder if that's not linked to earlier studies and standard advice telling women to get off all medications, whether it is an antidepressant or whether it's like cholesterol medication. You know, like um the standard advice has been. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't take any drugs, whether they're illegal or prescription or frickin' cough syrup or whatever. Um, and so many women are so understandably anxious about not wanting to harm their fetus that a lot of them are willing to go off, even if it does mean experiencing these horrific consequences. And after we come back from a quick break, we are going to get more into that issue of pregnancy and antidepressants. <laughs> Prevailing advice for women wanting to get pregnant who have been on antidepressants, SSRIs, mood stabilizers, etc., is that they got to get off them. That the best thing for the fetus is a medication-free body. And ultimately, in terms of completely and totally mitigating risks... Yes, 
um, getting off medication can do that. But logic around that is changing because of all of these issues that we're talking about in terms of the very real issue of needing to manage moms, moms to bees, mental and maternal health. Yeah. So again, you know, we mentioned earlier in the podcast that research between mental health, SSRIs and pregnancy and, and PPD has been stymied because, again, you can't do these blind tests on pregnant mothers. So even though there have been a lot of there has been a lot of research into SSRIs, some of the questions are like, is it the SSRI causing potential issues with the fetus? Is the depression itself causing it? The erratic behaviors that can come along with severe depression, things like risky behavior, smoking, drinking, uh, not treating yourself well, missing appointments, sleeping irregularly. Just a stressed body. Yeah, exactly. And so um, they do know, researchers do know that SSRIs um, don't cause a clinically significant risk of major birth defects. Your risk for miscarriage, preterm birth, and low birth weight are somewhat heightened. And they slightly increase the risk for pulmonary hypertension in newborns. But here's the thing. Like, what's worse? Because untreated depression and anxiety during pregnancy has also been linked to miscarriage, preeclampsia, preterm birth, neonatal complications, and smaller newborns in general. And Elizabeth Fiddleson, who is over at Columbia University, said that for about 10% of my patients, I can readily say that they don't need medication and should go off of it. Another 20% absolutely have to stay on medication. People who have made a suicide attempt every time they've been unmedicated. For the remaining 70%, it's a venture into the unknowable. That's frightening. That almost feels chilling to read that, that like we don't know enough because, again, every body is different. Every hormonal makeup is different. Every pregnancy is different. And so the fact that like, yes, you can go off and be safe. You have to stay on to stay safe. But for the rest of you, anything could happen. And I'm not surprised at all that in 2016, it's still a venture into the unknowable um, because, A, like I think that for us to even get to this point to where women would be afforded uh, the possibility that their mental health might um, deserve as much attention as uh, fetal health, say, um, is a reflection of and had to be preceded by gender equality. You know, and women's rising role in society and also in medicine in general. Um, I don't think that we would be talking about this if it were still the old days of only dude doctors who thought that it was just like, you know, uterus juice in our eyes <laughs> causing all of this. <laughs> um, because also up until now, up until, you know, women have uh, really become more of their own health advocates more loudly Um and also doctors speaking out on our behalf as well. Um, again, part of that motherhood script is that you will sacrifice everything for the good of your baby. I mean, it's, it's, it goes to, um, the conversation that we had, uh, a while back with longest, shortest time host Hillary Frank and how 
women who are experiencing anxiety, trauma, or depression around their birth are helped in no way by people saying, well, at least the baby was healthy. The only thing that matters is that you have a healthy baby. And that's been the prevailing mindset. Um, but the more we are now learning and destigmatizing these kinds of healthcare issues, we are having to question how true that really is. And this is nothing against babies, y'all. I'm all for healthy babies. All the babies listening, you're okay. You <laughs> but don't write us letters. But the healthier, the healthier parents can be as well. The healthier that baby is probably going to be developmentally. Oh, I would, sure. I would think. I mean, generally speaking, broad strokes. No, I mean, that's, that's literally true. Uh, Christina Hibbert, who's the founder of the Arizona Postpartum Wellness Co- Coalition, calls PPD a familial disease because when it's untreated, it can interfere with bonding and cause massive family stress. Uh, in mothers, to start, untreated PPD increases the risk, not surprisingly, of future episodes of major depression. Moms might be less likely to initiate or maintain breastfeeding. Infanticide, though, of course, it's rare, can occur because of neglect or abuse. Um, in partners of women with PPD, the risk of depression increases. Uh, if we're talking in heteronormative couple terms, up to 10% of new fathers may experience PPD along with their female partners. And in the children, children of moms who experience untreated PPD can experience emotional and behavioral issues like sleeping and eating disorders, excessive crying, ADHD and language development delays. They're all more common than in children of mothers without depression. But the effects, though negative, are really long term usually only if the mother's depression is chronic or untreated. So if she gets the help she needs, if she gets the support she needs and can be a better parent to her child, um, that child's negative effects are, are likely to be um, lessened. And this reminds me of, uh, of that Facebook conversation that was sparked um, that I mentioned earlier around the essay in Cosmopolitan about the struggle of having to go off of antidepressants um, during pregnancy and how to go back on them. And one thing that really struck me in a number of comments that I saw um, from women was that, hey, you know what? If if you know that you have a mood disorder, don't get pregnant. Don't pass that along potentially to your child. And I wanted to to raise that issue um, to, to open this up to listeners because um, – that's that's not a that's not a solution in my mind to I think it's unrealistic. Right. And, and also, un- unfair and also like I don't need your opinion about my body. Yes. And again it it also seems to reinforce this hierarchy of you know good mothers versus all the way down with like unfit mothers, women who you have no business being pregnant. Um, and that kind of pregnancy shaming, um, is absolutely interrelated with all of these mental health issues. So, um, I just wanted to toss that out there, uh, for listeners, whichever side of, of that argument you might be on. Um, because I, I don't know. To me, it was just a really, it seemed like a really cruel thing to say, but I'm also sitting here as someone who has a mood disorder and I, uh, I don't know. I would just, I would never like, why, why are you telling me what to do with my uterus? Yeah. 
But recognizing my own bias, I am saying this as someone sitting here with a mood disorder. Well, again, as we said, pregnancy is what sparks everybody to have opinions. So, and you know, we mentioned earlier that, um, PPD and PPA can really strike anyone, um, of any background. But there have been some studies looking at different groups in America. Uh, there was a, a New York study. Uh, looking at Asian Pacific Islander women and found that these women were more likely to receive a diagnosis after their providers talked to them about their depressed mood, but they were less likely than other groups to have had this conversation. Um, and the significance is that Asian and Pacific Islander women who are between 15 and 24 have the highest rate of depression and suicidality compared to any other ethnicity, gender, or age in this country. And when it comes to postpartum depression, Researchers have found that they seem to have higher rates than black, white, and Latina women and are more likely to have had prenatal depression. Um, there was another study from Arizona state psychologist Linda Lueckin, who was researching low-income Mexican-American women and the health disparities that they experienced compared with white middle-class women. And they found, she found that the Mexican-American women experienced particularly high rates of postpartum depression, as much as 33% of new mothers. And, you know, we mentioned those, those average stats earlier in the podcast, which hovered around like 10 to 15. And so this is significantly higher, but Lueckin found that despite these high rates, this population also sees certain protective factors like strong family ties, which keep depression rates lower than they would be otherwise among low income mothers. So, I mean, yeah, we talked about how there are these emotional aspects, not only hormonal and physical going on, but also emotional aspects tied up in PPD and PPA and having those strong family supports and ties are so important. I mean, when it comes to childbirth in general and raising children in general and having a strong family to help you, but also to support your mental health in this case. To quote Hillary Clinton, it takes a village. And that's especially true. I've stopped quoting Hillary Clinton at this point. (laughs) That's especially true uh, for low-income women. There is uh, some ongoing research looking at the connections between uh, postpartum depression specifically and its prevalence among lower-income women. Um, So the research has found so far that there tends to be a higher incidence rate, which makes sense because you're coming into this pregnancy likely with uh, more financial stress um, than you would otherwise. Um, but at the same time, like when that's also compounded by ethnicity, uh, black and Latina women had the lowest rates of PPD treatment initiation, which didn't necessarily mean that they didn't need it. They simply weren't accessing it. And when they did initiate treatment compared to white women, They had lower rates of follow-ups or uh, lower rates of refilling antidepressant prescriptions. Um, And all of this is not necessarily saying like, oh, they're so irresponsible. No, this is when we have to pull the lens back even farther and look at the barriers to care, such as social stigma, uh, communication problems, logistical issues uh, like insurance coverage, time constraints, transportation, Um, sometimes Mental health is simply not accessible. I mean, it just you you cannot make it happen. 
Yeah, and previous studies have suggested that addressing those types of logistical challenges and cultural beliefs about mental health and addressing communication between patients and providers can be helpful in meeting mental health treatment needs in general, but also, of course, that applies to seeking treatment for PPD and PPA. And the good news with all of this is that we're actually knowing, you know, the, the things that we've just talked about for the past hour. You know, it is becoming more common knowledge. Clinicians are paying closer attention to it. Um, women are now being set up when possible uh, with teams of not just your delivery doctor, but also perhaps your um, uh, maternal psychiatrist or and and your doula and whoever else it is. You know, we everyone really needs like a, a childbirth squad. Yeah, it seems like can mine have a dog on it? I'm not going to give birth, but I feel like if I had a childbirth squad, it would include like a golden retriever. Oh, yeah. A golden retriever, like a sensible one named like Dr. Barbara. Yeah. Like a therapy golden retriever named Dr. Barbara. Who has um, some like thick, like Warby Parker style glasses. Uh, yeah. And a clipboard. Yeah. Because she's I mean, she might write with crayons, but she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> um, and in addition to Dr. Barbara's groundbreaking research. That's right. Um, which is just mostly digging holes behind the hospital. <laughs> uh, but there is treatment for PPD. And a lot of it starts for it and um Prenatal and postnatal anxiety as well is uh, just the awareness and education. It starts with n- having someone that you can talk to or being even aware that these are symptoms of something other than, oh, they're just the baby blues. They'll go away. Um because talk therapy and support groups like Postpartum International and Postpartum Progress are extremely, extremely vital to helping new parents who are dealing with these issues. Um, in fact, medications are certainly available and certainly um, vital for some folks. Um, but in addition to that, a lot of doctors suggest, you know, talk therapy being the first line treatment, even even if medication is necessary, you still want to include some of that more uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and just hanging out and being able to talk to and share with people who are going through the same kind of thing you are because it's so isolating. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like I had uh, every Thanksgiving, my aunt was like, so I your mother told me you're in therapy. What do you need to go to therapy for? And I was like, what? What? Everyone needs to go to therapy because and I'm not just like radically changing the subject. Talking with a therapist can really help you find ways to cope with how you're feeling, to help you solve problems, set realistic goals and learn how to respond positively. Um, and of course, Don't forget the benefits of couples therapy because, like we pointed out earlier, uh, postpartum depression and anxiety can really rattle the whole family. And that's great if you're doing the work, whether it is therapy or medication or a combination. But if the people around you are unaware of how they can be helping and changing their behaviors as well, it might not be 
as effective. Um, and I, I did think it was interesting slash unfortunate that the United States actually lags behind Europe and Australia in creating these things called mother baby psychiatric units. And those allow the moms to deal with the hormonal and mental health fallout of giving birth. Um, but it allows them to continue breastfeeding. It permits direct doctor observation of the mom and baby interacting. And it allows for immediate and constant 24-7 support. And I have a feeling that the type of support that the U.S. would need in order to catch up to Europe and Australia is um, subsidized health care, especially if we're talking about support for everybody. Um and one bit of advice that just came to mind, Caroline, uh, that I heard when interviewing a few months back a uh, maternal psychiatrist is get off the Internet. Oh, yeah. So aside from specific organization sites like Postpartum Support International, which is at postpartum.net uh, or Postpartum Progress, which is at postpartumprogress.org, a lot of what you will find if you are experiencing what you think might be uh, postpartum anxiety or prepartum anxiety or depression, um, you're going to want to stay away from those message boards and I mean, comment they're, threads. They're bad enough for like my stomach aches. You know, I can't imagine. I mean, the stuff about pregnancy and postpartum issues and, and fetal development, like there's a lot of judgment in there and there's a lot of very biased and, and personal opinions. And so it is I'm passing along to you doctor recommended advice um, to stay off the Internet and, you know, really seek out those support groups who can offer more face to face uh, support for you. And having talked to people who are part of uh, both postpartum support international and postpartum progress, I can also tell you um, from from my experience with them, they are so, so, so passionate about what they do because most of them have been through this and have seen so many women in particular go through this and feel so lost and so alone. And they realize that this is just a vital part of our healthcare that's often so inaccessible, even invisible. Um, so I'm so grateful to the women out there, um, who have been through this and are saying not again, never again, who are using their traumatic experiences to energize them to become advocates and educators for other women, you know, and also the the folks in the medical community who have made this um, maternal health care, you know, really a cornerstone of their work. Yeah. And I would just add, like, kind of jumping off your earlier points about the Facebook conversation that was happening, I would just add um, that whether you have been, will be or will never be pregnant ever, um, it's you're not helping anyone by passing judgment. Uh, you're not helping anyone by saying that someone should or should not have kids or is going to be a good or a bad mother or, you know, whatever. Um, I would argue to just be an empathetic real and kind human um, so that we don't have to deal with so much mental health stigma and shame. And with that, um, 
listeners, we would love to hear from you. And um, if you would like to remain anonymous, of course, we will always respect that. Just make a note of it in your letter or message. Um, you can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us from Facebook. Um, and also partners of people who have experienced this, family members of people who have experienced this. Um, this affects you as well. And there are often questions of how to be the very best support that you can be for someone who is going through uh, post or prepartum anxiety or depression. Um, so we would love to hear your experiences and insights as well. Uh, you can also tweet Caroline and me directly if you prefer. I'm at Kristen Conger. I'm at the Caroline Irv. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Lindsay in response to our charitable burnout episode. Uh, she said, your recent episode on nonprofit burnout really spoke to me as I spent 10 years in nonprofits working my way into a senior position at a small arts institution for the last four and a half years with an operating budget under 500000 a year. I felt compelled to write to share two things. First, Regarding the lack of diversity in many nonprofits, from my, albeit anecdotal, experience, this problem starts with many internship programs. A number of programs, such as the one I administered, are unpaid. Even as it complied with federal law for unpaid internships and was part-time, many college students and recent grads of color did not go after the opportunity or turned it down when weighing it against paid positions. I also saw this with white applicants who came from lower-income backgrounds. When those individuals did become interns, I noticed some of them had less external support emotional, personal, or financial than other more affluent interns. This is wildly unfortunate. Second, I wanted to share with you ladies that I was the first woman to have a baby while at this nonprofit. At the time, the nonprofit was... 36 years old. The organization had to dust off a maternity leave policy from the 1980s and bring it into the 21st century. I ended up with 12 weeks off partially paid thanks to New York State disability and saved vacation time. As my salary could not nearly cover full-time daycare, I negotiated what I thought while pregnant would be great, bringing my son to work with me two days a week till he was six months old and working from home two days per week till he was 10 months old. My boss agreed. I look back at this time and say, what? I so appreciated this extra time to physically be with my infant son, but it was an insane time for me, my husband, and I'm sure my coworkers. As I primarily worked doing educational public programming, I had extra work and life challenges once a baby was in the mix. I realized about a month after returning to work that a change was necessary. It took me about a year of emotional soul searching and feeling like I was privately divorcing my career, but I ended up transitioning to a job at a tech company when my son was just over a year old. This was terrifying and in many ways heartbreaking, but was necessary for my own well-being and that of my family. Two plus years out of nonprofits and at that tech company, and I cannot believe how happy and fulfilled I am. I do miss nonprofit work sometimes. Do I miss wearing 30 hats, the long hours, and never really being able to leave work? Absolutely not. Thank you for your wonderful work and keep it up. And Lindsay, you keep up your wonderful work. And I have a letter here from Ashley, also about our charitable burnout episode. She writes, As I sit here in my office at a nonprofit listening to your charitable burnout episode, I can't help think but yes, yes, yes. Having spent my entire career thus far in the nonprofit sector at several different organizations, I've seen everything you've discussed on the podcast. In my first full-time job out of college at a nonprofit helping families in poverty, I was paid 
actual minimum wage. The irony of working at a poverty-fighting organization for poverty-level wages was not lost on me, but it was expected that employees would be okay with it because of the opportunity to quote help the kids, and I completely bought into it. As a new graduate with starry-eyed hope for the future, I was willing to expect far less than I was worth for the experience and the chance to help others. Looking back, I was completely being taken advantage of. The level of burnout I saw employees experience there, as well as in my subsequent organizations, is so high, and I have to think that feeling devalued, financially or otherwise, is a big part of that. In my current role managing a volunteer program, I also see race and gender play out in my pool of volunteers. While there may be equity between men and women in volunteerism here, anyway, our volunteer pool is overwhelmingly white. My manager and I have been trying to increase the number of people of color serving with us, but it's an uphill battle. I would love to see an episode on the race, class, gender politics of volunteerism one day. Thank you again for all you do and for thinking of us in the nonprofit sector. Well, Ashley, thank you for all that you do, and、um, that episode suggestion on volunteerism is a terrific one.、Um, and listeners, if you have thoughts, experiences that you would like to share with us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com again is our email address. And、uh, Caroline, do you have anything you want to plug of how people can get in touch with you? Well, if you don't want to tweet me at the Caroline Irv, you can always go over to my personal website at carolineirvin dot co because I'm too cool for the M. Caroline, too cool for the M, Irvin. That's right. That's what people call me. Maybe that's the URL I'm going to buy. <laughs> <laughs> It's awfully long. If you want to keep up with me,、uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Kristen Conger, and you can also go to. Tinyletter.com/slash/kristen, and that's Kristen, C-R-I-S-T-E-N. I spell it because <laughs> it's often misspelled. I understand.、Um, you can sign up there for a weekly newsletter I've been doing called the Do Better Dispatch. It's pretty cool. And if you are interested in learning more about stuff Mom never told you, and want to find all of our social media, blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, the one place to go for all of that is stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 